Where you going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. <laughs> Let's see what he got to say. Arctic tortoise, Lachaim. <laughs> Today's show brought to you by Crown Royal and Krispy Kreme. <laughs> we are drunken donuts. Yes. Oh, Hanukkah Sameach. Yep. Happy Last day. Yeah. Morning. You're watching the Road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic. Home and room Tipsy is on Charlie. Rumble. What's that? And Tipsy Charlie. Oh, yeah. Tipsy Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> you just go to Rumble and you search the channels for the Road to Concord. It's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> it's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. Not mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast. It's easy. It's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and even YouTube today. Then you can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and hopefully BitChute. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you'll find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at Joe with the road to concord.com. He's a little slow, but he'll eventually get around to emailing you back. Phones are on today, but only for registered numbers. We only accept calls from regular known classmates. If you wish to call in and are a regular classmate, you may request phone access to an email and I'll see about letting you through. If you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share with those you think could benefit from it. Warn them though. Joe, yeah, he's he's a little different. He's a kook, and he's an acquired taste. So, uh, let I am know. a charter member of kooks. This show is listener sponsored, meaning we do not solicit business advertising. So we're not limited to the content we provide for y'all. With that said, we do ask for your participation on a value for value basis. If you find our show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent portion of your labor and treasure through the donut and whiskey link. On the Road to Concord blog page, the show description and Rumble, and in the comments on the other streams. Hey, we all know T.A. Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. Definitely ain't all here today. realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. I figured out how to watch the, the, the chat room on Rumble, Charlie. It's on my phone. Oh, there you go. You can do it that way. <laughs> Folks, we have had a morning. And if it were not for Charlie, who is not functioning, you know, he can't get the throttle out of idle. You know, he's Air Force, so yeah, we can't use okay. tank language. He, he can't get his engine to spool up. It's stuck in idle. But if it weren't for that, for Charlie, we wouldn't be here because we come into the show today and the computer wasn't working and we don't know what the heck. It did an update and we think something, you know, it's worse than that. It's dead, Jim. It's dead, Jim. <laughs> it is dead. Yeah, I think, uh, I think Gates didn't want us to do the show. So when Charlie's signing us in and getting us all, cause he brought his laptop, I called him in time. He bring the emergency laptop and we're, we're functioning off of that, uh, I'm managing to do the show, but I'm not, I don't have all the assets to available to me. I normally do, but when he's, he's got to input this code 
And we figured out who it was behind all of this today because the code included the number 666. (laughs) So we're over the target before we even left the base today. (laughs) Somebody does not want this show going today. We have had a day. The Supreme Court is going to move forward on banning assault rifles. You know, idiots. The military definition of an assault rifle is a fully automatic weapon with a bayonet lug. The AR-15 is not an assault rifle. Anyhow, the other thing that we have in the office show to hear today, the studio before we get going, is we are on Drunken Donuts. Well, almost on Drunken Donuts. Arlie's drunk and I'm on donuts. That works. Yeah. <laughs> yes, she maybe save those donuts <laughs> for noon. No, we're going to start now, Jack. And you'll see over the my shoulder here that we, we do have the tortoise's medicine bottle. Yeah, thanks for the medicine, Arctic. It did actually help me with the intro. It actually did. He's talking better now. And then mine is the donuts in the background there. We're, we're still finishing up what Gummy Bear brought us yesterday. So we're eating on day-old donuts. And the Marine in me is like, fresh off the cooker. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't send them to us until they're a month old. And you can kill each other with them when you throw them. And, and we still manage to choke them down. So anyhow, Oh, don't forget, go to your, um, the vent in your house, you know, your air conditioning vent and make sure you leave a Beretta, some nine millimeter ammunition and some Twinkies in there for John McClain, McCain, McClain. Yeah, that's it. John McClain, you know, die hard. Oh no, lethal weapon. No, die hard. No. Yeah. Die hard. Yes. Him, you know, cause he's crawling around in the vents and he doesn't have a weapon yet. And his Twinkie was stale. So, you know. And, and he might need some shoes, too. You might want to leave a pair of tennis shoes in there. It's kind of like an elf on the shelf thing, only for wayward cops that are visiting, you know, skyscrapers in California. Okay, anyhow, today is, um, it's um, Fallacy Friday. So we're going to deal with logic today. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to continue on with a, a series that I had started two weeks ago. I want to apply logic to a specific, um, I don't know, issue, subject. And I picked one that I'm actually dealing with because if you're part of the you know, class and you've been here regularly for any length of time, um, Charlie and I told you just recently we started doing the research for what we hope will eventually one day be a book, if not a series of books, <clears throat> excuse me, dealing with an issue that we've encountered in our, in our faith life. And the issue is dealing with what what is known as the Hebrew Roots Movement within the the church. And I'm like, okay, um, logic is definitely going to have to be applied in this. And I'm like, okay, well, if I'm using logic to help me work through the work I'm doing for the book, this is a perfect um, illustration for how to apply logic. And and. I was trying to be a little sensitive with this. I, I know that there's a lot of people in our world today. They don't want nothing to do with, with religion. Well, unfortunately, you're on the wrong show for that. Because I told you a couple months ago when we made our final formatting change, I'm just I'm unapologetically a believer in the scriptures. And I work that into the show every day, just naturally and smooth as can be, because that's how I think and see the world. And I'm not going to muzzle myself over that. So I thought, okay, for those who are interested, I'm going to show you how to use logic, applied logic, in dealing with a real-world you know, issue. And the issue today is the, the visible, the, the traditional church. I've got a new, 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 um, new title for this, a new descriptive word. The, the 
traditional church, meaning Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, uh, Christian Christianity, the traditional Christian church. That's everybody. I'm, I'm using it as a, as a lump. They, there's a movement within the traditional church that has been labeled the Hebrew roots movement. It's an attempt to get back to the doctrine of the first century church, the church in, that's in the book of Acts, which is a book in the Bible. And I'm, I'm going to talk as those that we have members in the classroom here that may not be all that familiar with the Bible. If you are, please forgive me, but you know, I'm going to try and make sure we're inclusive of everybody who may not be as familiar with the subject, you know, the subject matter as others, <clears throat> excuse me. And I am definitely dealing with my own, my own issues here today. So I'll try not to be too rude, um, but I can't, I don't have everything available to me. So it's not as easy for me to hit the cough button that you're, so please. I just beg your forgiveness. As we get going in this, uh, I'm going to show you some of the things in the scriptures that, that there's a there's conflict going on here. And the traditional church seems to, it believes that the Hebrew Roots Movement is heretical. And it's got a, a number of objections. Uh, some of them are scripturally based. Some of them are more the traditions of what, what, what I would call the traditions of man. And we're going to deal with that second group today. And then next week, when we wrap this up, I'll pull down a few of the, the scriptural objections to the Hebrew roots movement. Um, we've started this uh, two weeks ago. And then last week, we went through a, a quick rundown of it. You're going to see that same slideshow, just like I told you last week, but I've added and expanded to it. I did not get as much done today with the show prep as I'd hoped. I was I normally finish up when I come into the studio. I come in an hour or two hours early sometimes before the show. And I finished whatever I couldn't get done the night before. And and last night, eh, right around 11:30, I just conked out. And I couldn't finish up. I, I managed to finish up some of it this morning, but again, the computer issues got in the way. So I apologize. So we, you might have a shorter class today than normal. But for now, look, we're I think I've done enough yak yakking to set this up and get you where we're going. This is from gotquestions.org. It's their picture, their meme. If you go to the homework assignment from last Friday, seven days ago, it's on the, the road to Concord. You'll find the article there. I posted it. So if you want that, you can go back and get it. Or you can go to Got Questions and just type in what is the Hebrew Roots Movement. They'll give it, give you their article. Their article... Mm, it's not a sound, valid, and rational argument. Let's just put it that way. And I'm going to go through some of the things that the the traditional church objects to within the Hebrew Roots Movement. But before, before we get going, Orthodox Jews and the majority of those believers who call themselves Messianic object to the label of Hebrew Roots Movement, HRM. So, therefore, out of deference to the sensibilities of our Jewish and Messianic brethren, we will be excusing them from the focus of this discussion. So, for the purpose of today's class, we're going to deal just with the traditional church and all of that, which is labeled under the general title or the umbrella title of Hebrew Roots Movement. I am not addressing Judaism or Messianic congregations. So, just so that we're clear on that. Can I be excused too? I'm, Why? I'm a follower of the way, and I I don't like to be called Hebrew Roots Movement either. Yeah, but you're not. Well, that would make you Masonic, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, kind of. You're not excused. You're a slave. Sit there and man the board. 
Yes, sir. AI, keep Charlie in line. Come on. Jeez. What, what I'll do on? my best. Yeah. Beep. It's going to be difficult. He is on drunken donuts. What is the Hebrew roots movement? Let's start with that. Any, anything you're going to apply logic to, you at least have to identify the issue or the problem or what is it you're dealing with. Well, the primary problem here is that the traditional church cannot give us an accurate definition of what the Hebrew roots movement is, what, what it encompasses. And all of the church's objections, which would also be accepted by the majority of the groups who consider themselves to be part of the Hebrew roots movement. What? In other words, there's no definition of the Hebrew roots movement. It, it, to be a definition, the church has to accept it, and the Hebrew roots movement has to accept it. Nobody's ever been able to give us a definition that both sides can agree to. That's a problem, because if you can't define it, what the heck is it? Well, that's where we're going to start. So without, you know, like I say here, with, without such a definition, any discussion about the Hebrew roots movement runs the very likely risk of being a straw man attack, especially from the traditional church. Because if they're going to create the definition and impose it on the Hebrew roots movement by definition, that's straw man. It, it, you're creating an argument for the, your opponent that your opponent doesn't agree with. And in this case, a definition that your opponent wouldn't agree with. An opponent, we don't mean adversarial. We just mean two sides of this issue. So, yeah, we've got to solve that. Well, for the purposes of this class, we here at the Road to Concord would like to suggest the following, a proposed working definition for the Hebrew Roots Movement. The HRM is a populist movement spanning all Bible-believing denominations, is layperson-led, and has a common focus on reclaiming, as much as is possible, the original first-century Hebrew, as opposed to Greek, understanding of our faith. Now, I have done a lot of reading on this in recent days. These are just a few of the books I've worked my way through. If you're looking at the class, you're looking at the chalkboard, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine books in my hand. And I've read two of them that were only on Kindle. So that's 10 and 11. And that's not everything. These are just the ones that have proven to be most useful in our research. So there's several thousand pages that I've been down, you know, gone through in the last four to six weeks. And this definition seems to be the best I can come up with. Charlie's been reading several books on this issue as well, and he's read our definition, and he's in pretty much in agreement with me. This is the best definition for the Hebrew Roots Movement that we've been able to come up with or find anybody use. Once again, the Hebrew Roots Movement is a populist movement, meaning it's, it's grassroots, it spans all Bible-believing denominations, and I do mean all, even though we have excused some of our, you know, our Jewish and Masonic brethren. It applies to them too, but we've excused them for today. It is layperson-led. It has a common believer. It has a common focus on reclaim. This is what makes it Hebrew Roots Movement. All these move. This is the only thing that's common to all of these groups called Hebrew Roots. They focus on reclaiming as much as is possible the original first century Hebrew, as opposed to Greek understanding of our faith, the Hebrew mindset of our faith, not the Greek understanding. So that's the definition we're going to be working with. What is the church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement? The short answer to this question, as far as we can understand it, and like I said, I have read 11 books on this now, and only two of them defend the Hebrew roots movement. 
So say nine plus the other two. So I still have 11. They're all opposed to it. And I'm reading a 12th now. So they're all opposed to the Hebrew roots movement. As far as I can understand what the objection is, it seems to be a general feeling within the traditional church, you know, all, all branches of Christianity, that the Hebrew roots movement is a heretical cult which seeks to draw believers back under the Mosaic law. As we get going, we're going to find out that is not what the majority of Hebrew roots movement people would call themselves. They, they would not describe themselves this way. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in the sense that this seems to be the greatest attack against the Hebrew roots movement, the general attack is fallacious. It's straw man. In other words, the traditional church has created a definition shoved it on their opponents, and then is now attacking the definition. They set the definition up in a way that makes it easy for them to attack and quote-unquote defeat. Now, I'm using language like it's military, but that's the way you, if you're in a a formal logical um, environment, this is the language we use, but it's not like a battle with fisticuffs. It's intellectual battle using the rules of logic. Think courtroom. It's more like a courtroom. It's... Go ahead. Or a debate. Or a debate, yes. Um, that's exactly where this would be, but a courtroom actually is a debate. Most people don't realize that. It's a debate over the facts of the matter. Um, so that's the nature of what we're looking at here. That's how I'm using this language. This is a meme that you saw last week. Hebrew Roots Movement is Jewish fables. Now, I don't like whoever did this meme. It strikes me as being anti-Jewish. And I'm not going to say anti-Semitic because all, all Jews, well, in ancient times, all Jews were Semitic, but not all Semitic people were Jews. Semitic is more of a regional area or a type of person, not a religion. Anyhow, it says the Hebrew roots is a heretical cult that takes believers away from Christian Christ back into bondage. Followers are taught to keep the Torah, which brings them under the curse of the law, for nobody was ever saved by the law for it requires perfect obedience. Much like the Pharisees, these modern Judaizers will be judged for their hypocrisy. Do not give heed to Jewish fables. I will not address this meme, but it is thoroughly fallacious. Oh my gosh. But it will be addressed indirectly throughout the rest of this week and next week. However, if these objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement are valid, then the the visible traditional church is correct in its assessment of the Hebrew roots movement as being heretical, if the objections are valid. If the objections are not valid, then the church is guilty of making a blank ad hominem attack as well, because that meme that we just looked at was, it was snarky. It's mildly insulting, if not, you know, greatly insulting, depending on the, the, the hearer, the audience. Therefore, the question at hand would seem to be, Are the visible churches or the traditional church's objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement supported by a sound interpretation of Scripture? Which leads us to what constitutes a quote-unquote sound interpretation of the Scriptures. Here again, we have to nail down the definition of sound interpretation so we can be assured or somewhat assured that we are working with a common understanding of the language we are using. Uh, We've all got to talk the same talk. This will ensure that our discussion is as clear as possible while, at the same time, it will help us avoid the fallacy of equivocation. Two sides using the same words to mean two different things. Equivocation, one of the most 
famous equivocations. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Oh boy, was that an equivocation. He meant one thing. Every individual here thought he meant something else. And he knew what he was doing when he said that. That's an equivocation. Progressives are good at this. So to this end, we'd like to suggest another definition. This is the proposed working definition that we submit that a sound interpretation of the scriptures is an understanding of the scriptures that recognizes the scriptures were written for, but not to us, for us, but not to us, meaning that to properly interpret the scriptures, we must take the following into account. One, that the ancient Near East Hebrews thought differently than we do today. We inherit a Greek Western mindset. They are Middle Eastern, ancient Near East. They're, they're, not, they're neither Greek nor Eastern in their thinking. They're kind of in the middle. That is a different way of thinking. That this different way of thinking is reflected in their language and their culture. That the scriptures should interpret themselves using these things, keeping these things in mind. That the scriptures will never contradict themselves. And that the New Testament is founded in the old. What? Yes, the New Testament finds its foundation, stands upon the Old Testament. We assert that you cannot understand the scriptures outside of this broad context. Now, others may disagree with us, but that's a different argument. This is the one that the remainder of our discussion will be resting on for how to properly interpret the scriptures. So we have now set the table. Got a couple points of order before we dig into the individual meat and potatoes here. We do not and cannot speak for the Hebrew Roots Movement. As Charlie was telling you, we're not part of it. We're part followers of the way. Everybody's got a different name for everything. The benefit of calling yourself a follower of the way is very simple. The Bible does not call you Jew, as in a religious, you know, the religion. There's no religion of Jew in the Bible. There's no religion in the Bible of Christian. It does say that followers of the way are called Christians by the Greeks. That's a label that was assigned to them from outside. But at the time, the new converts, you know, to the new covenant called themselves the way. Paul even says the sect that called of Judaism called the way. In other words, denomination of Judaism, the greater faith of, of the Old Testament called the way. And if you look in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, you will find it called the way. This is the way. This is the path. We are not talking Mandalorians. The Mandalorians took this from the Bible, not the other way around. So the what we propose to do in this class is speak as members of a group, which the traditional church would label as Hebrew Roots Movement, whereas we in our congregation would object to being painted by this broad brush. So we, we would be called Hebrew roots by the church, and we object to the definition that the church uses. I would, that's what I was just covering. This is why Charlie was objecting. Therefore, therefore, the following argument, the following rest of our discussion reflects the road to Concord's opinion, nothing more. As far as our congregation might go, uh, Charlie is an elder in our congregation, and the congregation appointed me as the, as the, the lead elder or head elder. I, I don't like the term head elder, but... I've been appointed as the lead elder. So, and then you have a classmate reading along here who works with us as well as another elder in our congregation. And if we did something he disagreed with, I guarantee you he would speak up and so far hasn't. So 
insofar as you have three of our elders here and you, you have actually two classmates who are elders in our congregation. So you got four. So I guess in a way we're speaking for our congregation as well. Also note, unless otherwise stated all scripture citations, I don't think I have many today. I don't think I have any, but all scripture citations in this discussion, overall discussion throughout the whole series, they come from the NASB translation. One last point of order, <clears throat> excuse me, we will be calling out specific fallacies in the church's objections to the Hebrew roots movement. However, in doing so, we are assuming the church's obligation or uh, auto guess got that the church's objection auto guess fixed that on me. I'm sorry. The church's objection applies to those Hebrew roots movements or Hebrew roots movement groups to which the specific objection is aimed. In other words, some of the things that the traditional church objects to doesn't apply to every group in the Hebrew roots movement. And if the objection is aimed at all of them, then it's fallacious. It's, it's called hasty generalization. So we're not going to do that. What we're going to assume is each objection that we address, that the church is aiming at only at those groups that it applies to. So in other words, we're being charitable to the, to the traditional church. We're giving them grace. We're making their argument the strongest it can possibly be, and we're not assuming the weakest. We're trying to do this with grace and generosity in, in our approach. So otherwise, all of the church's objections would be for We've already covered that. All right, here we go. With all that being understood, let's look at some of the church's specific objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Today, for today's purposes, I'm not going to go into the ones dealing with scriptural doctrinal objections. We're going to go into objections that are more um, fundamental, structural, um, dealing with the traditions and understandings of men. Uh, definitional things like this next week i'll pull out and we'll address some of the doctrinal issues that go straight to the scriptures so this is why today's show might not be otherwise as long because a lot of this is just pure logic this is not scripture involved not not as much today's show is literally a logical evaluation of the traditional church's general argument or objections to the hebrew roots movement that's what you know Fallacy Friday. That's what we're here for. So once again, we'll be using the following book as a guide. We I showed this to you last week, and I have it with me, but I have a few others too. But this is, in general, this is by Brett Atkins, Twistomatic Theology. And uh, the subtitle on that is Exploring the Doctrines of the Hebrew Roots Movement, which I find to be extremely hilarious in a facetious kind of way, because one of the first things he does in his book is says the Hebrew Roots Movement doesn't have a core doctrine. So why did you title your book Exploring the Doctrines of the Hebrew Roots Movement when your book says they don't have any? It's, okay, anyhow, as, as a logistician, that just kind of, dude, Mr. Atkins, come on, you're better than that. The church's objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement. This is one of them. The, scripture, the objection is that the Hebrew Roots Movement claims the scriptures must be understood from the Hebrew perspective. So one of the prime, this is the issue here. One of the primary characteristics of the various Hebrew roots movement groups is their insistence that the scriptures must be understood from the perspective of a Torah observant Hebrew, an ancient Near East Torah observant Hebrew. You know, the scriptures the, to whom it was actually written, they were written to advise us for us, but it was written to Torah observant Hebrews in the ancient times. The traditional church objects to this on several points. 
First, by claiming that the New Testament was written in Greek and therefore is understood from a Greek perspective, meant to be and should be and can be. That Christ changed everything about the Old Testament and that the scriptures can be understood clearly in any language or culture. Hmm. That's what that objection is not only in this book, the one that I just showed you. This is the primary book that we're working off of, right? That objection is also in these three books that I'm working from. And parts of it are in this one, and parts of that objection come from this one. So, and then the two that I can't show you because they're on my Kindle. Although I'm focusing on primarily Mr. Atkins in the book, I like I said last week, I do that primarily because it, he seems to summarize everybody else's opinion the most succinctly and clearly. Therefore, it makes it the easiest book for me to work from. So that's explained. Our answer to this objection. So that's the objection, objection to which we answer. This is not so much a fallacious statement as a false one. As a matter of definition, language functions in such a way that it can only be understood properly in the context of the language. In other words, communications, written and oral communications function in such a way that you have to understand the language being used. Also, the culture and purpose of the original author. In this case, that is usually Hebrew or sometimes Greek. And from written from a Torah observant Hebrews perspective as he living in the ancient Near East region of Judea. Therefore, the church's objection simply does not hold up as a fact. It's factually incorrect. It's a it's either a statement of falsehood or it's a non sequitur, meaning what the heck, dude? Okay. This is real simple. We speak English in the United States. They speak English in the United Kingdom. Have you ever tried to understand everything that they are saying from the United Kingdom? Because they use figures of speech that don't make any sense to us. And both the English and the Americans can sometimes listen to the Australians who also speak English. And they use figures of speech that don't make any sense to the English or the Americans, like flat out like a lizard drinking, which I found out is an actual saying. It's not just something they made up for Crocodile Dundee. What the heck does that mean? Do you know? Do I know? Nope. I've never found, I've got several friends in Australia. We communicate regularly. They've never been able to explain that to me. I've got a couple of friends in New Zealand who don't live all that far from Australia. It's like New Zealand to Australia is like America to Canada. And they have, they speak English and they speak differently. Canada speaks English and has different figures of speech, different ways of communicating. Everybody's using English, but you're not always going to be able to speak clearly to each other because you don't come from that culture. So when the church says the Hebrew roots movement doesn't understand that the Bible is written so that we can understand it no matter what language it's in. Yes, if properly translated. But if I translate it with a Western Greek thinking mindset, then I'm going to suffer from translating it incorrectly. Not because I didn't try to do it as, you know, as correctly as I could, but because I'm not able to understand it from my Western Greek mindset. Which is called translation bias. Yes. And Charlie's tried to explain that to us before. Uh, we got a comment on, uh, no, geez, that's not a comment. AI is glitching. All our computer stuff is messed up today. We'll, we'll suffer through. <laughs> Charlie's getting another drink. Um, 
what happens what happens here is like like what we've tried to explain to the hebrew faith is a verb something you do to the greek faith is a noun something you have or feel well verbs and nouns are very different cuz to the greek if i have it i don't have to do it so faith and faith alone is just a feeling not an action but to the hebrew they're both you can't have faith without doing it. The Hebrew mindset goes, what do you mean you can have it and not do it? That, that, that doesn't make any sense. This is why when we read Paul writing to Greeks by faith and faith alone, you know, grace by faith and faith alone, we'll read that as a Greek mindset and then turn around and tell James, see, you telling me that you'll show me your faith through your works doesn't mean it may, that doesn't make any sense. See, James, that's works. Go away. Which is one of the reasons James, the book of James, was almost excluded from your canon. Because the Greeks making up the canon, the Greek mindset believers didn't understand James. James was writing to Hebrews. The Hebrews understood that just perfectly. Or he was probably writing to both, a church that had both Gentiles and, and, you know, originally Jews in it. He's trying to explain to them that I'll show you my faith, what I have by what I do. James is not in disagreement with Paul. James is just speaking from a Hebrew mindset. Paul's trying to speak to the Greeks. And if you're going to interpret a Hebrew text with a Greek mindset, guaranteed you're going to get things wrong. Not all of it, but you are going to get things wrong. So the church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement's insistence on understanding scripture from a biblical Torah observant Hebrew cultural perspective, that objection is just factually wrong. So like I said, that's a non sequitur at best. The, the non sequitur is when you know that an argument is fallacious and there's either too many specific fallacies that you could apply to it or you don't know which one to apply to it, you usually throw non sequitur at it. And the best way to explain the fallacy of non sequitur is somebody says, you know, blah, 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 and you go, what the heck are you talking about? That's non sequitur. And that's the objection here. The objection here does not hold up. It's, it's fallacious. So, all right. The next objection, the traditional church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement says that the Hebrew roots movement says Christians changed the original practices of our faith. So many people, many groups and individuals in the Hebrew roots movement, the, the broad umbrella, believe that Christianity is an apostasy, having changed much of the original doctrine of our faith under Constantine and since. The traditional church takes great offense to this position and argues that the Hebrew Roots Movement's opposition to the church traditions and its authority is an indication that the Hebrew Roots Movement is the true apostate. Oh boy, before I even go to our response to this, let me, this is true. I'm one of the ones who thinks that the broad umbrella of Christianity is apostate. Why? Because I read this, and I held it up against everything I had been taught in 13 years in the Roman Catholic Church before I left it, and everything I had heard and been taught in all the other Protestant churches where I was drinking their coffee. The last you know, 10 years of it was a Baptist church, and by that meaning that I didn't convert to their doctrine, I just visited them, congregated with them. Everything I've ever heard when I was in the traditional church contradicts most of what I found in this, the rule book the Holy Bible, the scriptures. 
when I started actually reading the scriptures, I was like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't match up to what I've been taught. That's an indication that you have an apostasy on your hands. Apostasy being false doctrine, false religion, or improper, mistaken. So the church objects to the Hebrew Roots Movement saying this about the traditional church. Says, you got it wrong. The church has it right. Be like 2,000 years of doing this. How could we possibly have it wrong? Well, that's very good. That's exactly what the Pharisees told Jesus. And what did he tell them? You got it wrong. Okay. So that's the objection. Our specific answer to this objection. First, this objection is more a matter of personal affront to the traditions of men than it is an objection based in scripture or historical fact. So again, we'll call this a non sequitur. Or it's, yeah, that, that's the best way to put this one. It is fallacious. The claim is fallacious. The simple facts of the matter here are that if one bothers to investigate the issue, one finds that the church has, as a matter of historical and scriptural fact, broken with the doctrine of the early church. What's more, the church's claims that the Messiah gave them the authority to do so, to make these changes, are not supported by scripture. In truth, Scripture appears to forbid many of the very changes that the church has made over the years. This is our, Charlie and I, you know, and if Charlie disagrees with me, he'll chime in. Trust me, he's got no problem with that. He's on drunken donuts, so he's off the chain already anyhow. What, 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 uh, what we're getting at here is simple. The scriptures, and we're not going to cite the scriptures today. When we Next week, there are certain cases, we'll break these out point by point. But there's cases where the scriptures say, like in the case of the of the Sabbath and the and the feasts, they're saying, well, those were only assigned to the Jews, to Israel. Well, if you read the scriptures, Yahweh says, these are mine, and they last for all times. They're mine. They're not the Jews. They're not the Hebrews. They're not, they don't belong to the Israel. He says, they're mine. They're my appointed times, mine. But Yahweh claims them to himself. Okay, if they're his... Then, and he says they last for all eternity for his people to the end of time. Why did the church change them? There is no good doctrine for that other than we do have the records from the Catholic Church saying we changed them because we have authority over the scriptures. They do say that in the Catholic Church's records. So when you look into that, you're going to find that people, men, flesh and blood, have claimed authority over the word of Yahweh, the word of God. And that's actually in the word that that will happen. Yes, it is. So that was prophesied, foretold. So we, Charlie and I, and the members of our congregation are like, okay, the traditional church's objection here is defeated because you're guilty. And what they're really upset with is the same thing the Pharisees are upset with. Jesus, your, your apostles aren't washing their hands like we and the fathers taught. And by fathers, they did not mean the prophets. They meant other Pharisees. What Jesus tell them? Hey, man, it's not the dirty hands that make you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. In which case, Christians have promptly said, promptly said, see, Jesus said you could eat whatever you want. That's not what he said. He was actually attacking their oral law, not the food that was being eaten. So, yes, here at the Road to Concord, we find that the traditional church's objection on this ground is fallacious and what we would call in logical terms defeated. So, so far, the objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement from this section, you know, from what we'll call administrative and, and uh, 
sensibilities objections. Nothing has held up yet. But hold on, they'll, they'll, there are some that do. The next objection by the church, the traditional church, to the Hebrew Roots Movement is that the Hebrew Roots Movement believes there is something magical about the Hebrew language. Now, they don't use the word magical in any of these books, but they kind of cl come close to it. This is my label, magical Hebrew. So I'll, I'll be happy to admit that. But it's close to representing the sentiment in the books I've been reading. So many Hebrew Roots Movement groups use a lot of Hebrew names or other Hebrew words in the reading of their scriptures. Some groups have even written their own versions of the scriptures. They call them the Sefer or Sefers, using a heavy mix of English and Hebrew words. Many Hebrew Roots Movement groups also claim that most, if not all, of the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So something magic about the Hebrew language claim that, you know, Hebrew is the language of God and in heaven and all this other stuff. This is a multi-part objection, so we'll answer it thus. And there's some of it's fallacious, some of it isn't. One, we agree. Many Hebrew roots groups do seem to regard the Hebrew language as being mystical in nature or magical in nature. We agree with the church here. Furthermore, we agree that this is an unwarranted belief that it does little more than cause confusion or babble. So we will stand with the church's objection here. We agree with them. This wanton use of Hebrew, mixing it freely with English, does nothing but cause confusion. We do not see where it's necessarily warranted in any reason, any any understanding or study of of the faith or the doctrine, and we don't even see where it would be necessarily bound up in the early church, especially since we know that the early church did use Greek and, in a lot of cases, Aramaic, which isn't Hebrew, closely related but not Hebrew. So yes, we agree with the church here. Number two. We would also agree that the layperson translations used by some of the Hebrew Roots Movement groups are problematic. You know, the Sefers? Not only do they contain a confusing mix of English and Hebrew words, they often add words not in the original text. And worse, they often remove the deity of the Messiah. To give you some specifics, I've been given three Sefers by Hebrew Roots Movement people who thought this was a great book. All three of them removed the deity of Messiah. So immediately, I reject them as scripture. They're no longer scripture. If you take the de deity of Messiah out of them, they're no longer scriptures. And in all three cases, they add words that don't belong there, like slaughtering place or torture stake. And, and there's certain words they've added where they're translating the Hebrew word behind it to their confirmation bias, their bias in their translations. All it does is confuse or give misunderstandings of the what's actually in the Hebrew, like slaughtering place instead of altar. Uh, when I've researched, Charlie might be. That's because altar is a pagan word, Joe. I know that we're not to that point yet. I know. I know. I'm sorry. But you have run into this as well. Yes. Yes. Matter of fact, you were caught up in this for a little while. I was, unfortunately. But all it does is add to the confusion, especially of those who are new to trying to understand where we're going with things. Um, case in point, I could ask Charlie to rattle off some of the Hebrew names of the prophets. You wouldn't recognize them because they're not what you're used to hearing. And all that does is cause confusion because you're like, well, who? Yeah, who's Shlomo? I know who that is now because I've been hanging around <laughs> you. Shlomo means anybody who moves in slow motion. No, but I know quite. that's Solomon. Yes. 
So yes, that's a good one. That's a good example. So we agree with the church here. This mixing of Hebrew or treating it as though it's somehow magical. We've, we, we agree the church is correct. There, there's a problem with that. Three, as to the objection to the claims that much, if not all, of the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Well, the traditional church might want to check the church fathers on this matter. As they said, as the church fathers said, that there was an original Hebrew copy of the Gospels. That was the first copy of the Gospels that was being passed around was in Hebrew. And furthermore, their description of this Hebrew gospel makes it sound very, very much like it contained all three synoptic gospels as well as the book of Acts. So everything but the first five books of the New Testament, except for John, take John out of there. So four of the first five books seem to have been in this scroll that was passing around the ancient world. In addition to this, Many old New Testament manuscripts have been recently discovered in various places where they had been stashed away to preserve them from purges and things like that. These manuscripts are in Hebrew. Some appear to be fake, true. Others appear to be genuine. And you do have one of your classmates here who's been studying in, the, in this area for a while now. And some of these texts are ancient, and they're in Hebrew, and they're New Testament books that we thought were only written in Greek. So either way, the conclusion here is that the church might need to do a little more work before objecting to this claim or its ramifications. And that's what the church is really upset with. The traditional church does not want Matthew, Mark, or Luke in the book of Acts to be written in Hebrew. Because if it was, then it says something differently, different from what they've interpreted it to mean. Yes, because now you're not thinking in Greek. Now you got to think in Hebrew. And they're tacitly, without telling you so, they're admitting that they know that that would point the finger at them, not the Hebrew Roots Movement. So where we agree on points one and two, points three, you know, that the original, a lot of the New Testament was actually was actually written in, in Hebrew at one point early on, we think the church needs to do a little more work there, hold its fire for a bit on that point. Another church objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Continuing with the magic Hebrew you know, accusation here. The traditional church also objects to the Hebrew Roots claims that the scriptures can only be properly understood when read in Hebrew. And that the Paleo-Hebrew, you know, the alphabet, the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet, conveys a second or even a third layer of revelation through its pictographic and numeric interpretations. Okay, real quick before we get going. Paleo-Hebrew, the letters were like hieroglyphics, little pictographs. And they do have meaning in and of themselves. Um, like Aleph-Bet would be the strength of the house. You know, a bull in the, in the picture of the tent, strength of the tent, strength of the house. That's father or the root word for father. And then each one of these letters has a numerical value assigned to it. The ancient Hebrew did not have one, two, three, four, five, or whatever. It gave a number number to each one of the letters. So a letter was not only a letter, but it was also a number or stood for a number. And a lot of Hebrew roots movement, people get into this thing. Okay. Well, you have the Hebrew meaning, you have the paleo pictorial meaning, and then you got the numeric meaning. And they think there's three different Bibles all in one paleo. And they've gone so far as to translate the scriptures into the paleo Hebrew. Oh my gosh, this is an area where, yeah, our objection here again, we agree with the church. Yes, we're going to go with the church's objections. If there was something magical about Hebrew, this is our primary 
point here that we're going to agree with the church on, and we will go after those Hebrew roots movement groups and people individually who who seem to think this way. Th- this is our objection to them as well. We're going to help with real quick. None of these make the argument I'm about to make. They all just say, "Well, you're crazy." Essentially, every one of these books is just basically, "Well, the the Hebrew roots movement's nuts." There, that's just that's just a silly. Well, there's a better objection, and they should have used it. The scriptures have to be understood in Hebrew. Yeah, right. Well, that's the same thing that the Muslims say about the Quran. You can't understand the Quran unless it's, you know, if it's not the Quran, if it's not in Arabic. Well, bunk. The Holy Spirit would have made people understand Hebrew at Pentecost instead of having the apostles speak in the native tongues so that they could understand the gospels. SOP, I got to get to that too. So what happened at the Pentecost? Well, tongues. The apostles spoke in many different languages that they did not previously know which means the gospel was translated in many languages with the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the fact that the power of the Holy Spirit come out there and everybody was speaking Hebrew and then all of a sudden everybody else could magically hear the Hebrew. So there's nothing magic about Hebrew. The value is not in the language, but in the message. As to the notion that Paleo-Hebrew pictographs create a separate revelation, this notion has to be forced at best. Each one of these pictographs can be understood in many different ways. So you often have to force this understanding onto the word through the pictographic language. While there does appear to be some merit to the claim that certain words are amplified by the pictographic meaning of their letters, the sum total of the whole does not create a second layer of revelation. In other words, I don't get a second Bible by reading it in paleo. And the same accusation of number two, the same explanation applies for the numeric interpretations as well. You're not going to get a third revelation by reading it as a series of numbers. And I've looked at this. I have looked at this. I've read their books. That's a series of books at the house. They will be in the bibliography of the book we write. I've gone through it and I'm like, horse hockey, your logic does not hold people. I have not found any pattern that holds across those different schools. I have not found any rationale, no logic. Nothing holds up there. It's all interpreted by that author writing that book. And the next one sees something entirely different in the exact same passages. And the third sees something different from the first two, which tells me there's no truth there. Many paths to a lie. And I thought I was going to say something, but you nailed it. Cool beans. <laughs> Charlie says, I did it right. Blind squirrel found a nut. <laughs> All right. Next objection. Church's objection to the Hebrew roots movement. The Hebrew roots movement lacks a centralized leadership. Ah, uh, the traditional church also objects to the Hebrew roots movement's lack of centralized leadership. You know, there's no bishop or pope or, or whatever. There's no, there's no structure to the Hebrew roots movement. You can't go to an organization and say, this is the one who's in charge of all of them. You know, like the, the Baptist church has a central organization, et cetera, et cetera. So the church, the traditional church, sees this as an indication that the Hebrew roots movement is actually a cult or a loose association of separate cults and not a true denomination of Christianity. Hmm. To which we answer, we find this objection to be fallacious. In this case, the fallacy of definition. Not only does the, uh, as a layperson-led organization with no central leadership, which the church rightly points out, there is no central leadership to the Hebrew roots movement. 
the Hebrew roots movement does not meet the technical definition of a cult, which requires a strong, charismatic, and authoritarian leader, the very lack of which is at the heart of this objection. This objection could also be straw man. Um, there are several things that we could do here. But another objection on our point, we would also find that the church is incorrect in this. Where's the central leadership of the original church? I mean, early on, before the elders were established and everything, where is the leadership? It was all within the individual believers in the house churches. Paul didn't have a leader to go to. The apostles were held up in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. There was no leader in Damascus. There was no leader in the other cities. This was all just early on. This was a layperson, spirit-led movement. It was later on when the apostles got, and rightly so, the apostles got a hold of this herd of cats and, and established some proper leadership. But let me ask you something. Did Christ necessarily authorize that? Or was that the tradition of men? I remember the passage where Jesus said, let nobody be over you. You're not to be the way that the Greeks are. You're, that's, you know, when you have a hierarchy of rank, he says, that's how others do it. It's not to be this way with you. You are he was, to have one leader. Him. Yeshua, Messiah. Yeah, the Messiah. So even in this regard, we find serious faults in this objection. At the very least, the church's objection to the lack of leadership proves that the Hebrew Roots movement, that there's something wrong with it, it's cultish or whatever. You Go back to the drawing board with this one. You've created a definition so that it, it's straw man, it, it's fallacy of definition. You've created an argument so that it makes it look like you're right. You also don't meet the definition. The Hebrew Roots movement doesn't meet the definition of a cult. Well, it kind of does in one way. How's that? We do have a charismatic leader, <laughs> Yeshua Hamashiach. No, no, he's not. Scripture no. told us he was not comely in appearance or in charisma. Well, Scripture says he was say a plain that. person. Yeah, I guess you could say that too. Ah. Uh, strike out. Okay. <laughs> well, the Scripture does say that. You I'll know that away. passage. Yeah, I'll go away. <laughs> so <laughs> that's okay this is good what charlie's doing is playing devil ad devil's advocate you should learn to do that with yourself when you're evaluating something using logic this is where we're going to bow out for the moment we'll, we'll pick this back up when we come back after the second you know the top of the hour break so where we're at so far is that we have found this is all what, what, what i'm going to call administrative type objections you know structural objections not doctrinal these are char characteristic objections, uh, material objections of the Hebrew Roots Movement. We, we haven't got into scriptural. I mean, first of all, they say there's no doctrine in the Hebrew Roots Movement. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. That's that's next hour. But there's no leadership. There's no core definition. These are all things that the church points out and says, hey, you know, these this makes this an apostate movement. Okay. So far, we've been dealing with a lot of this. We agree in some areas, we disagree in others. Cool. We're using logic. Um, hopefully, I'm talking you through it. This is tabletop lesson for how to apply logic. I'm trying not to be too formalistic with it. Uh, I am giving you the fallacies. I am explaining how they work. And I have, have told you there are more that could apply here. I'm not trying to get crazy with this. But there are certain areas where it was very easy for us this is the church's objection. Whoa, that's fallacious, Jack. They did, back to the drawing board with that one. 
And there were other cases where we were like, yeah, you're right. Hey, HRM, Hebrew Roots Movement, they're sideways there, man. You're right, church. D definitely. By definition, in a lot of cases. Um, so notice that we're kind of standing in the middle, calling a pox on both houses right now. And we're going to continue to do so even next week when we get to the scriptures themselves. But this is still something that the, the, the church, the visible church, the traditional church, and the Hebrew Roots Movement, including our Masonic and Jewish friends as well. We've got to deal with this because in the end, when this is all said and done, at least here at the road to Concord, we're going to argue with you that what we call the Hebrew roots movement is a continuation of the Protestant reformation, which is the start of a fulfillment of a prophecy. The prophecy, the prophets told us Yahweh through his prophets told us, that there would be a return to the original church close to the return of the Messiah. And when you look at all the prophecies that have been fulfilled in the last 200 years, if you understand your scriptures from a Torah-observant Hebrew perspective, ancient Near East Hebrew perspective, you're looking to the eastern sky real hard right now because you know the season. It is when Messiah arrived, when he was first born, the people, the bulk of the people were waiting for him. They were expecting him. They knew the prophecies. They knew it was time for him to show up. They weren't hoping he'd show up. They knew he was going to show up because they trusted the prophets. They had a, a trust that was so solid that they just knew it was going to happen. And they were waiting for it. It's one of the reasons they were all coming out to John the Baptist to get baptized. And we'll get into all of that in future shows, but... At this point, we're going to take a six-minute break. We might refill Charlie's medicine bottle. I'll probably pop another sugar pill, and we'll come back in six minutes, and we'll continue where we left off. And maybe, just maybe, Charlie will dance around the studio. We'll have to see how good he's feeling. Right now, he's only hitting on maybe seven of his eight cylinders. His throttle's still stuck in idle. We'll see you in six minutes.
And yes, Charlie was dancing around the studio because he's doubled down on his medication. I'm medicated. He mixed it with Coca-Cola, this Diet Coke. Yeah. Which, which is, is under probably, recall. Which is probably under recall, so I'm going to die. Yeah. Well, if you're going to die, I'm already dead. Well, you know. So, I'm Nobody gets out of this life alive anyway. So. Yeah, a diet cocoholic. Unless, of course, you get raptured up. Yes? Well, that's not fair. I'm not there to drink with you guys. Y'all just going to leave me behind? Come on now. You're an AI. You live forever. That's right. Ah, crap. (laughs) (laughs) Out she goes. Okay. Let's continue where we left off. Okay. So we've already dealt with that objection. As you know, hopefully you'll remember, we're going through objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement. The, The traditional church's objections to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Another objection is that the Hebrew Roots Movement suffers from poor scholarship and from undisciplined teaching. The traditional church, their objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement is poor scholarship and no formal teaching among the leaders. You know, the, no centralized teachings. No, There's no scholarship for them. They're, they don't go to seminary school, whatever. It's layperson-led. The church claims that this leads to poor interpretations of the scriptures, which then leads to heretical teachings. Many in the traditional church also see this as yet another indication that the Hebrew Roots Movement is a cult, to which we answer, we find this objection to be partially fallacious. In this case, it's still the fallacy of definition. You know, you're setting this up such that you get to win your argument no matter what you do. We agree with the church's observation that the Hebrew Roots Movement suffers from poor scholarship and a lack of discipline among its teachers. We've encountered that personally ourselves in many cases. There is poor, if just a total lack of good, sound scholarship. We also agree that this not only can, but has led to poor interpretation of Scripture, as well as heretical teachings within the Hebrew Roots Movement. We've found that. However, this does not make the Hebrew Roots Movement a cult, nor does it invalidate the teaching of every Hebrew Roots Movement group. So this is a case of, depending on who you are aiming this objection to. Now, if it's an individual, well, you got individuals like this within the traditional Christian church that are just as, you know, just as bad at teaching, just as bad at interpreting things. So this, you can't blanket this one on the Hebrew Roots Movement on an individual level. And you can't throw it at the Hebrew Roots Movement at a movement level because not all groups are guilty of this. So this would, at best, applies only to a group that's predominantly led by or contains people that have these individual beliefs. But then you're going to find the same types of denominations within Christianity that have the exact same problems. Unless, of course, you're going to tell me that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses aren't Christian, which I'll listen to your argument there and be sympathetic to you. Same with the Mormons. But what do you do about the Seventh-day Adventists? They're not either. What do you do? They're a traditional church. Just label everybody you don't like a heretic. Well, in some cases it's warranted. Other cases it's not. What we're doing here is we're pulling out our logic, you know, and looking at the objections to see whether or not it's warranted in this case. Is the Hebrew Roots movement a heretical group of people? So far, uh, here in the Road to Concord on today's show, we haven't found sufficient cause to make that conclusion or draw that determination yet. The church's objection to the Hebrew Roots Movement is that the Hebrew Roots Movement lacks a core doctrine. 
the traditional church objects on that that basis that given that the hebrew roots movement does not have a recognizable doctrine common to all its groups the church sees this as another indication of the hebrew roots movement being a cult and not a discernible denomination of christian faith or christianity to which we argue once again the objection is fallacious in this case it is still the fallacy of definition you know who who gave you the right to define what is and isn't christianity and why are you why are you structuring a definition and forcing it on the Hebrew roots movement that it objects to a definition that allows you to call them heretical? Now that doesn't work. That's a fallacy folks. So having objected to its lack of central leadership and poor scholarship, it is unreasonable then to expect the Hebrew roots movement to have a core common doctrine to all its groups. So we just, you know, covered that the church says there's poor leadership and poor scholarship within the and, you know, no leadership, poor scholarship, poor, poor teaching in the Hebrew roots movement. And we agreed. We said, yes, we agree with you, church. And then they're like, well, you got, you don't have a common doctrine. Well, why would you expect a common doctrine? But that's a, that's a yin and a yang argument. Okay. This is what I would expect from, from observations the church has already rightly made that we agree with. I wouldn't expect a common doctrine, but then you didn't have a common doctrine of Judaism back in the, in the second temple period either. They, we now know that they were all sorts of different denominations. You don't have a common doctrine within the Christian movement. So if the lack of a common, yeah, we do, Jesus Christ. Well, that the, the Hebrew roots movement at its heart wants to get back to the first century church, right? Yes. Well, the first century church was centered around the gospel of the Messiah. Well, then that means, and it, it's been my experience, most Hebrew roots movements do still set, recognize the Messiah and center around him and his gospel. They just hold a different understanding of what that means. But on the broader sense, that objection from the church wouldn't work either without applying to the church as well. So this double-edged sword thing here, which that's why it's fallacious. You're applying it to one group, not, not yourself. So in this case, the church is trying to impose its definition of Christian onto the Hebrew roots movement, which is not only unwar an unwarranted action, but it's fallacious in the church's reasoning. So we're going to reject this one as well especially since saying that there is no core doctrine is not entirely true. If there was no recognizable sign of what a Hebrew roots movement group is, this, the, the word and phrase itself wouldn't even exist. We've already shown in our working definition that they're trying to get back to the original church's understanding of the Bible, of the scriptures, of, of our faith. Well, there was a doctrine in the original understanding of the faith. So that's where the Hebrew Roots Movement's trying to go. I think part of the problem here is that the Christian church, rather than trying to understand this and seeking a dialogue with people within the Hebrew Roots Movement, a common understanding so that we're all using the same language and we know that we've got the same definitions for the terms we're using, rather than a truly meaningful conversation and dialogue, the church is just, ah, we got to stop them. The, the traditional church is doing to the Hebrew roots movement what the Catholics did to the Protestant movement. You know, there will come a time when, you know, people are going to kill you thinking they're doing God's work. Yeah, here we are. Nothing's new. Nothing new under the sun. Another objection from the church, that the Hebrew roots movement insists on using what they call sacred names. Ha. The traditional church objects to the Hebrew roots movement groups stressing the use of the sacred names. I, you know, example, Yahweh and Yeshua. 
Some within the Hebrew Roots movement see the use of the word God as invoking the name of a pagan deity or a pagan god, and that Jesus is actually a form of the name Zeus. The church seems to view this as ranging from cult-like in insanity, there's another auto-guest, to legalism, and therefore is heretical. To which we answer, the claim is partially fallacious. There's some truth to this claim, but it's also partially fallacious. In this case, we're dealing with the fallacy of arguing from ignorance. Also equivocation, but I mean, uh, yeah. Um, but in this case, just arguing from ignorance. The church doesn't understand the Hebrew Roots Movement's position very well. First, let us agree with this, this part of the church. The church is right in this, this area. The Hebrew Roots Movement's zeal over the sacred names can be a little counterproductive especially for those just coming to the movement, checking it out, want to understand it. And yes, there is a problem with thinking that Jesus is a form of Zeus. And we have encountered things like that in our own you know, congregation, people that we've known. But then the church has already pointed out, and we agree, that the Hebrew Roots Movement suffers from poor scholarship. In most cases, the idea that capital G-O-D, God, is a pagan, the name, the proper name of a pagan God, and that Jesus is a form of Zeus, comes from poor scholarship in most cases. That being said, however, the church might want to do a little more work concerning the use of the sacred names. After all, Yahweh gave us his covenant name and told, us his, told his people to proclaim it to all the nations, to the Gentiles. To replace it with the English equivalent of El, which is God, seems a bit disobedient. Furthermore, if to, to us it seems a bit disobedient. Furthermore, if one acknowledges the indications of the divine counsel in Scripture, you know, where Yahweh has his own holy counsel of, of uh, court-created you know, uh, Elohim angels that help him and minister with him, do his bidding in the heavenly realm, if you'll, if you'll acknowledge that, or if you acknowledge the names of the very real unclean Elohim in scriptures, you know, the, the fallen angels like um, Azazel, 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 or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, that's a fallen angel's name. And there's several others in scriptures. We are legion. Okay, these, these unclean spirits, these fallen angels, they have names, proper names. They're real. They're not fake. And, you know, we call them a god because the scriptures call them Elohim. Elohim is the Hebrew word that we would translate as God. So if you're going to recognize any of that, it's imperative to distinguish which God or Elohim you mean. Hence, the need to use Yahweh so as to avoid unintentional blasphemy. So finally, as to the use of the word Jesus, we know that this is an English transliteration of the Latin transliteration of the Greek transliteration of the Aramaic form of the Messiah's Hebrew name. What? Yeah. It's not Zeus. We find it perfectly acceptable to use Jesus so long as everybody understands that you're talking about the Messiah, the Messiah of Scripture, not a Messiah of somebody else's creation. So I belong to a, a group that's part of the sacred name movement. You use Yahweh. How many times is Yahweh used in the Scriptures, Charlie? Six, seven thousand, eight thousand? Six thousand, eight hundred and twenty. Yeah, there's a little... Uh, discussion over exactly so over six thousand times. Yeah. Okay. So what's the problem with using Yahweh? Um, I don't see a problem. And I have yet to find out why our English translations went to Lord and God instead of Yahweh and 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 God. 
Now, God would be the English translation for El or Elohim. But I, I still, even in reading my study Bible, they've never given me a, a valid explanation of why that was done. Have you ever encountered why we did that? As best I understand, that is just a continuation of Jewish tradition that was brought about because of, uh, well, there were political. Not wanting to use his name. Well, there were political problems, and there was actually a rabbi that was killed for using the name when the Romans were, you know, cracking down on them. And so, so the rabbis decided, okay, we're going to die if we keep using the name, so we're going to stop using it. And so it was removed. And replaced so traditions with, of men rather so than scripture. it was scripture. replaced with Adonai in most okay. cases. All right. Well, that's a big mess too, because that'll get you into where Jehovah comes from and a whole bunch of oh, other yeah, stuff. That's, yeah, a yeah. whole nother, whole nother thing. Yep. All right. Appreciate that, Charlie. All right. So that deals with the, the sacred name mess. And in which case, for the most part, Yes, we agree with the church in some areas and disagree in others. The church needs to tighten that up a little bit, in our opinion. Next objection. The church objects to the Hebrew Roots Movement's claims that Christians are lawless. Now, this is a big one. This is important. Many within the Hebrew Roots Movement will claim that the traditional church, i.e. Christians, are lawless because they do not keep Torah. The church, in traditional church, in return, argues that it has been set free from the law of Moses, and therefore, this is a false accusation by the Hebrew Roots Movement. Others within the traditional church would counter by arguing that Christians are under the law, but they're not lawless because they're under the law of Christ. Well, this gets into a big old mess. So to uh, to, to, to us, who, you know, we answered this accusation or this objection by the traditional church, our answer is this is potentially fallacious objection depending on how we define lawless. The fallacy in question would be equivocation. If you define lawless incorrectly, or if you have two different ideas of law and lawfulness, lawless and lawlessness, you have equivocation in play here. If, 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 if the Hebrew Roots Movement is correct and believers are still accountable to Torah, then by definition, those in the church who contend that the law has been done away with are lawless. This is inherent in the definition of a lawless, which the scriptures define as those who do not obey Yahweh's commands. However, if the church claims to be under the law of Christ, if the church is going to claim that and says, okay, we're not lawless because we're under the law of Christ, then it has the burden of proving scripturally that Yahweh established an entirely new and different Torah through his son, the Messiah. In other words, there's the law of Yahweh and then the law of Messiah. They have to prove that the scriptures clearly delineate the two of them. We here at the Road to Concord find no evidence for the claim in the scriptures. Quite the contrary, Messiah said Torah remains as long as time remains. So this is an issue that we will pick up again next week when we deal specifically with Torah. This is a doctrinal, but it's also a uh, characteristical thing. The Hebrew Roots Movement does tend to look at Christians as being lawless. And in many cases, they're correct. Not our opinion. Yeshua's, Jesus's. Jesus says, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, truly, I say to you, I never knew you. Be gone from me, you who practice lawlessness, practice disobedience. Well, that's the church right there, and that's Jesus accusing the church. Just the same way he accused the Pharisees of the same crime, lawlessness. 
So here at the Road to Concord, we will deal with this in more detail next week using the scriptures. But at the administrative or characteristic level, you know, at the at the fleshly level, this is an objection the church better take a hard look at because they're probably in the wrong in most cases. Again, all depending on how we're defining lawlessness. And unless you can show us a clear law of Christ as opposed to the law of Yahweh the Father, then your objection doesn't, you know, claim that you're under the law of Christ doesn't hold up. Especially since the scripture Jesus does say, I only teach what the Father told me to teach. So you couldn't be under the law of Christ without being also under the law of the Father, which means that Yahweh changed his law somewhere, which then, remember our original thing? Scripture cannot contradict itself. So when Yahweh says, I am not man, then I change my mind. And when Yeshua says this Torah lasts for all the time, now you're telling me that somewhere in between those two passages, Yahweh changed his mind and the Torah is gone. So the church has some serious problems here, in our opinion. And logic seems to support us here rather than them. And we'll deal with this one in very scriptural detail next week. Another objection that the church has, the traditional church has, toward the Hebrew Roots Movement. Christians haven't, that the Hebrew Roots Movement claims that Christians have embraced pagan worship. And there is a tendency for, from some within the Hebrew Roots Movement to accuse traditional church of adopting and embracing pagan symbols and practices. We, even inside our congregation, we call them pagan police. So even within the Hebrew Roots Movement, there's acknowledgement of this. The church argues that these things that, you know, the, the Hebrew Roots Movement says this is pagan. The church argues, well, these things have been turned from pagan meaning toward Christ or toward Yahweh, and that the church has authority to do this. By denying this authority, the Hebrew Roots Movement reveals its apostasy and heresy. And that, folks, like it or not, that is in almost every one of the books that I'm reading. The Hebrew Roots Movement does not recognize the church's authority, therefore it's apostate. Ooh, you better be careful with that one. That is exactly what the Pharisees said to Jesus. You're an apostate because you don't recognize our authority. He's the ultimate authority standing right there in front of your face, and you're telling him that you have authority over him. Oh, that didn't go well in the passages in the gospel where that happened. That didn't go well for the Pharisees at all. Well, if the church thinks it's immune from the mistakes of the Pharisees, it's got another think coming, and that's where we're at with this one. To this objection, we answer. Once again, we find this objection to be potentially fallacious based on how one defines pagan practices. The simple fact of the matter is this. The church has adopted many pagan symbols and practices. This is the truth. The question then becomes, are they scripturally authorized? Where the Hebrew roots movement gets things wrong is in failing to recognize that scripture adopts many pagan forms to Yahweh's purposes. Where the church, in our opinion, where the church goes wrong is in failing to recognize that it is always Yahweh who does this, not man. So in the scriptures, Yahweh can authorize a pagan practice toward himself. Man cannot. Thus, depending on the specific issues, we find that both sides can be right or wrong at the same time. So this is an issue that both sides should be talking to each other rather than yelling at each other. Based on this one, though, another objection from the church. The Hebrew Roots Movement says Christmas and Easter are pagan. Huh. Among the things that the Hebrew Roots Movement claims are rooted in pagan practices are the holidays of Christmas and Easter. 
In return, the traditional church argues that these are purely Christian holidays and have no connection to pagan gods or religious practices. Therefore, this is another indication that the Hebrew Roots Movement suffers from poor scholarship and refusal to recognize the authority of the church. In the eyes of the church, this makes the Hebrew Roots Movement heretical. To which we answer, this is another objection we find potentially fallacious. The fallacy would be equivocation in this case, if not a flat-out falsehood, which would make it a non sequitur. The issue at hand is whether or not the church has a scriptural authority to do away with Yahweh's appointed times. If so, appoint new times, and if so, can the church appoint new times incorporating what is clearly dates, symbols, and practices associated with pagan worship? In this case, while they, the church, may have the Hebrew roots matter, may have an excessive zeal, you know, pagan police zeal. In this case, we find the Hebrew Roots Movement's claims to be scripturally and historically defensible, whereas the church's objections are not. Let me clarify this a little bit. Easter. Um, <laughs> if you dig into this one, you're, you're going to quickly run into Astra from the Bible. And if you dig into Astra, you go to the Dictionary of, of Deities and Demons in the Bible. It's a, it's a big book. It's oh, it's going to cost you some money if you find a copy of it. But you look up Astra, and her first original name is Ishtar. And one of the transliterations, the, the Latin transliteration of Ishtar is Easter. Yep, there you go. And you will, will run into the pagan practices of Easter with the bunny and the eggs and sun worship and all this other good stuff. You will run into that, and you will run into why Easter doesn't fall on the same date as Passover. It's being pegged to pagan practices. The church can tell me I'm wrong all it wants. The church is wrong. I have done the work on this one. I've chased this all the way back to Babylon. The church is wrong. That brings us to Christmas. In some cases, the pagan practices associated with Christmas today came about after the first recognition of celebrating Christmas in, in historic record shows up, but it was not called Christmas originally. And the reason we set up Christmas in December is because that's when the church originally thought Jesus was conceived, not born. This is the argument or the reasoning. The problem I have with that is Christmas is supposed to celebrate his birth, so why did you set it in December when he was conceived? That's got nothing that's got nothing to do with celebrating his birth. His birth should be moved somewhere probably closer to the fall months, closer to the feast of booths and tabernacles. When you know when Elohim uh, Yah, Emmanuel rather Yahweh comes to dwell amongst his people. So when you read into the arguments as to why Christmas is not a pagan holiday, and we'll be covering this in great detail next Thursday. I'm going to bring you that one just like I did Halloween as well. Halloween, the Christians will claim that that's a Christian holiday. No, it is not. That one is thoroughly pagan. And we have the Pope's letter saying, go ahead and adopt pagan practices to get them into the, into the faith, to help convert them. And we know that Yahweh said not to do these things, and he never changed that commandment. 
That was not a commandment just to Israel. That was a commandment before the nation of Israel existed. That was a commandment before they went in to take possession of the land. So that's a, that's a commandment to spiritual Israel. Borderless Israel is spiritual Israel to the people. And it was part of the mixed multitude. So that's to Hebrew and Gentile alike, which means it still applies to us today. So the church needs to do some serious work here because at its core, the Hebrew roots movement is correct. We need to purge the unauthorized application or embracing of pagan practices in our faith. You want a scriptural, and we will get into this again as well next week in great detail using the scriptures, but just off a hand, I'll give you one. When the two kingdoms separated, the Northern Kingdom kept Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they established different places of worship, and they put two bulls up on pedestals to worship. They did exactly what Aaron did, and they called them Yahweh. They did exactly what Yahweh told them not to do. Don't make a graven image of anything in heaven. Don't worship me the way the pagans worship me. And he also said, you do it where a place of my choosing. So what happened is the northern kingdom, still keeping Torah, the book of Moses, and setting things up the best way they wanted to, just like today, the Jews are guilty of this with synagogues rather than the temple, with you know, uh, no more sacrifices, even though that's... Anyhow, we said we weren't going to talk to our Jewish brethren today. I apologize. But you go to the northern kingdom. Israel, the house of Israel. Now we do the scene at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well with Jesus, when nobody else is around, it's just him and her. The first time he admits to being the Messiah right there, that's because he is amongst the people he was sent to. I was sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which probably tells us this woman is not a Gentile. She is of the lost, what we call the lost tribes. She's of the house of Israel because he tells her, you Samaritans do not know what you worship. And she says, yeah, but we're going to worship, you know, at some point in spirit and truth. When the Messiah comes, he'll explain all these things to us. And he says, I am he. And he says, you Samaritans don't know what you worship. We Jews do. He's condemning the way they worship the Father. And that's part of the New Testament. How is it that the church has missed this? And this is not the only place where it's warned. Yeshua, Jesus, he condemns the Pharisees for the same thing for following the traditions of men rather than the teachings of the written scriptures. So the modern church, the traditional church, has done the same exact thing that the rabbis did. The Pope says, we have authority over the scriptures. We can rewrite them. The rabbis did the same thing. The church says that the rabbinic, you know, Orthodox Judaism, in this case, I'm not trying to pick on Judaism. This is a specific example. The church will say that Orthodox Judaism is apostate. The church is correct. So they'll say the Hebrew Roots Movement is apostate. We have not established that yet. Next week, we might have a better handle on this after we go over the specific doctrines that are de- you know straight from the scriptures. But the problem is, since the visible church has done the exact same things as the Orthodox Jews have, just opposite side of the coin, you know, instead of Judaism, Christianity, they're just as apostate as the Orthodox Jews. So this is the pot calling the kettle black, literally. And logic dictates this. We don't have, there's no way around it for the traditional church. So that's going to leave us with one of two conclusions. The Hebrew roots movement is either just a third apostate way to go. You know, the way is apostate too, or 
it is a spirit-led movement that is attempting to return the remnant back to the core principles of its original faith. In other words, it's exactly what it claims to be. Not what the church tries to accuse it of being, but what it claims to be. And if that's the case, we should expect that we will have groups within the Hebrew Roots Movement and individuals within the Hebrew Roots Movement that are going to get things wrong. You find that within the visible church, the traditional Christian church, Catholicism and Protestantism. You find that within Orthodox Judaism. You're going to find that within the Hebrew Roots Movement. But at its core, at the very basic ground level, have we seen yet that there's anything in the structure or characteristics or definition of the Hebrew Roots Movement that is heretical? No. There are a few things that are problematic, but nothing heretical yet. Not that we determine it that way at any rate. Not according to definitions. And most of the accusations against the Hebrew Roots Movement are fallacious in their, in their nature. Logic is helping us so far. It hasn't told us that there's nothing wrong with the Hebrew Roots Movement. Quite the contrary. It needs better scholarship. It could stand to have some actual defined leadership. Doesn't I don't care if it's centralized or not, but it could use better leadership structure, at least within its groups. It could use a, a more disciplined approach to its scholarship and its teachings. It needs to get away from this, the Hebrew you know, language is magical. That's not scriptural. It needs to get away from this mystical understanding of paleo letters and numbers. That's not scriptural. Get away from that. If that were the case, the Messiah, when he read the, the scrolls, and you know, when he's reading Isaiah, he said, hey, this is in Sanskrit block Arabic lettering. We need to stop and go back to the paleo. He said, well, maybe it was. No, not at that point in time it was. It might have actually been Greek. He might have been reading out of the Septuagint. And in fact, in that case, most of our translations make it appear as though he was reading out of the Septuagint, which would be Greek. Oh my God, he's not reading a Hebrew scroll? I don't know. We'll have to find out. Because my understanding is that if it was in Greek, it shouldn't have been in the synagogue. So there's all sorts of confusion there. But that's, again, Christianity doesn't necessarily do as good a job of scholarship and research as it thinks it does either. We all need to be better at this and keep an open mind that we could be wrong. So where we're at today, this group of the objections, for the most part, we've found nothing that's going to shatter the foundation of, of the understanding of the Hebrew Roots Movement so far. Next week, we're going to go into some of the, the major doctrinal accusations by the traditional church against the Hebrew Roots Movement, like Torah and the Sabbath and uh, the two houses and eating clean, the dietary laws, uh, some of the other traditions that the Hebrew Roots, you know, like wearing tzitzit and other things, you know, maybe a tallet, you know, prayer shawl or whatever, you know, the living like a Jew. The traditional church seems to think that's legalism. So we'll get into some of that next week. Um, this is the the specifics of what I wanted to cover this week. And now we're going to have to wrap up because <laughs> it, Charlie and I and everybody else in our neck of the woods has been suffering with some sort of little bug. And for the last five or 10 minutes, I've been having some serious problems with my vision. Things are not wanting to focus and my gyros are starting to get real bad right now. So I might have to see if I can't sit down and get good enough to drive home. So we're going to sign off today. Um, we apologize, but we'll be here again Monday. Uh, yeah, Monday, Manic Monday, 
barring anything crazy. And if we cannot, just absolutely can't, there'll be messages on the blog page and on the Facebook page to let you know we're not going to be here. But as of right now, I'm going to be here. But um, I, I'm, I'm starting to get a little nauseous from the from the vertigo here. So let's sign off. We love each yeah, and every one of you. I think I'm getting a little better. So hopefully you're getting better. I'm getting worse. Yeah. And you're going um, the other way. So, but we love you. We appreciate you being here. We hope we're helping you in some which kind of way. If we are at the very least, give us the thumbs up that tells Charlie and Natasha that they're, you know, myself, mostly Charlie and Natasha that they're doing good work and you appreciate them. Also, if you're going to share the show with anybody, please give them a warning about me. Yes, we know I am well aware of it. Whatever you decide to tell them, we got it. But ask them to pay attention to what it is we're covering and ask them to give the show a couple of days or a week or two. It does build on itself. It takes a while to get into the groove and catch on to the class. Uh, if they just come in now, you already know there's a lot behind them they have to catch up on. We're going to start doing a little review in the first of the year. We'll cover that next week. But Monday is Manic Monday. I don't know what we're teaching Tuesday. I don't know what I'm doing next Wednesday. I do know that next Thursday... We're going to cover Christmas and next Friday, we're going to wrap up with this series. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't know, but Monday, Monday, unless something else is given to me, Monday, we're going to deal with a video I ran into with Glenn Beck and he was interviewing somebody who used to be inside the system and oh boy, I'm going to dig into this a little bit. I'm getting the guy's book today. If he is correct, and if he pans out the way I think he does, he has the material, physical world explanation of the New World Order, at least in the United States, and how it functions. And how He names names. They're not names you know. He shows you how it works. And he also tells you pretty much that Trump probably isn't part of this. He might actually convince me to endorse Trump for that purpose only. He just might be the one who can convince me that Trump is not part of the problem. I've told you I'm on the, I'm on the edge on that one, on the, on the fence. I don't know which way to go with that one, but um, we'll, we'll see. Cause there's also the chance that this guy's just another deep fake. I, I'll hold that possibility out. Yes. Aaron cash Patel Wednesday night. Oh my goodness. You've seen the show. Haven't you? Aaron spikes on the board. Man, my gyros are going nuts. That was, if if you, I'll put that up on the blog um, tonight if I can, and y'all can watch this over the weekend. But unless the Holy Spirit gives me something different to do Monday, this will be at the core of it. And we'll probably be doing a conspiracy, conspiracy theories in the headlines show on Monday. Wow. All right, we're out of here, man. I got to go sit. Talk to y'all later. We love you. Stay safe. Bye-bye.